The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Well, um, I want to try to set this up for especially people. Uh, there's always first-time people here and others that have been part of churches that uh, don't teach uh, verse by verse. That doesn't make us any better or anything. I'm just saying that that's the case. So we're, we're going through the Bible, and we're going through the writings of Paul right now. And so what I want to accomplish this morning uh, in the sermon is to help us understand the heart of Paul, his tremendous love for the church that he founded in a place called Corinth. Now, he started that church in Corinth. It's a Greek area, so mostly Greek-speaking men and women who became Christians in that area. Many of them would have been part of Judaism also, but Paul came along with some others, and he poured his life out into their lives for a period of 18 months. Now, 18 months in that time is different than 18 months in our time when it comes to relationships. Uh, just to understand that. I mean, keep in mind, and I'm not telling a joke here, they didn't have any phones or televisions or anything like that. Paul lived among these people day and night and taught them what the scriptures had to say about Jesus being the savior of the world and why they had to have a relationship with him. And he had a tremendous amount of success in that 18-month period. And then, as was part of what he was Uh, to do, he left there to go to another area to either start another church or sometimes just to encourage other churches, and he was in the habit of sending letters back to the various churches. And of course, in Corinth, something happened that was not good news. Some false teachers came in and tried to undermine Paul's teaching, tried to bring ceremony and stuff back rather than, you know, religion instead of the relationship they're supposed to have with Jesus. And they were trying to undermine uh, Paul, and they said terrible things about him to turn the people against him. And this broke his heart. Now, this passage of Scripture is often used to uh, is used as a teaching point to teach leaders in the church of how we should react to the people in the church. But I want you to understand the character is the main point. Paul's character is an important point and that we are all to be of the character of Christ in our lives, not just the leaders. But it's, it's pointed first off at the leaders, and you'll understand that a little bit as I explain it as we go through. So follow along, but let's start first with me. I'm going to start this way. So Paul is writing, as I've said, to the Corinthian church, out of a heart of love while hurting deeply because of the false teachers who invaded the church that he planted, invested his life into the lives of those in the church, teaching the truth about Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee. That's the top of the heap in Judaism. 
I mean, he was well off. He was, he, he was a very important, highly respected person, a very religious person. A brilliant student, a well-known, respected teacher named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 70 men who ran Judaism. They were the supreme court of Judaism. And whatever they said, that's what you had to do. It was very structured. And Gamaliel was part of the Sanhedrin. Now, in the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, then the book of Acts, that's the history of the church. In the book of Acts... Gamaliel cautioned the Jewish leadership to stop persecuting the Christian apostles by pointing out how many false messiahs had come on the scene claiming to be sent by God. And, and they had all of these false messiahs had failed, and they were now just memories. Gamaliel stated that if what these Christians were teaching was true then nothing can stop them, and they'd be fighting against God to try to stop them. But if it is not of God, that they will fail. Nevertheless, in spite of all that, Paul became one of the strongest persecutors of the early Christian church and had been given permission, even by the Sanhedrin, to hunt down Christians and arrest them. And he was even present when a crowd stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, to death. Stoning, by the way, uh, was a, a capital punishment for crimes. And Stephen had committed the crime of, uh, of saying that Jesus, who died on a cross, only criminals died on crosses, uh, actually rose from the dead. And because he said that, he became the first martyr of the church. They stoned him to death. Now, I often call Paul a religious terrorist at this time in his life, and he certainly was. But on the way to Damascus, with papers from the Sanhedrin to arrest Christians, Paul met Jesus in a dramatic vision and became a fully committed follower of Jesus, which is completely unexplainable, really, when you realize that Paul thought killing Jesus was doing God a favor. It would be accurate to say that Paul became the greatest Christian teacher in the history of the church and remains so even to this day, 2,000 years later. And it would be correct to say that Paul's writings in our New Testament and his courage and love and perseverance remain the biggest influence of the church compared to any other teacher in Christian history. Paul founded the Christian church. And as I've already said, for 18 months, he poured his life out discipling those who believed in Jesus. Paul suffered greatly because of his love and commitment for Jesus and those who received Jesus as Lord and Savior. So now he has left the church to plant other churches or to be at other churches to encourage them. The false teachers had infiltrated the church, claiming that Paul was an imposter. The passage we will study for a few minutes this morning should cause all of us who love Jesus to deeply desire to imitate Paul's love and persistence in the face of any kind of persecution we may suffer because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote four letters back to the Corinthian church. 
defending his teaching and his lifestyle. We only have two of those letters. But there's one letter we know a lot about that we do not have, and it's often called the severe letter, warning those he so loved in Corinth about what they were being taught. And this severe letter was at first misunderstood, and that was because of the false teachers. What we learn about Paul in our study of his writing should greatly encourage us. Remember this verse, Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse four, only a few weeks ago. Here's what Paul's here's Paul's words. I wrote that letter. That's the severe letter. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with troubled heart, and many tears. Try, try to get a picture of Paul here, an emotional picture. I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, Corinthians, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. What we are about to study is what a church leader should look like, Paul being the example, but also what we should look like. Just because we're not leaders doesn't excuse us from having the characteristic character traits of what a Christian should be like. So we're putting a frame around Paul's life so that everyone can understand what it means to be a Christian leader and also what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the Bible, the church is called the body of Christ. That's the Bible name for church. And it's described as a family. Paul is in emotional pain because part of the family has been misled by these false teachers, and Paul wants those he lived with for 18 months to know the truth about his life, and most importantly, about what he taught them, which is the truth about God and Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to save everyone who will receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let's start at chapter 6. First two verses, I know we studied them last time, but we'll be very quick here. They were, and look at your Bibles, it says this. As God's co-workers, <coughs> we're all co-workers of God, Paul says, we urge you, we urge you. Now, let me just stop there for a minute, and I always do. Cults demand things. Christianity urges. You see, we're still free to make choices. And Paul is urging them. Any leadership should be like that. We should teach the truth, and then we urge you to respond to the truth. But we can't make you do that. You have to decide whether to do that. So he starts off this way. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace as unmerited favor, something we don't deserve, salvation, in vain. And you'll remember from last week, the word vain means empty or useless. And then Paul writes, for he says, that's God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and the day of salvation, I helped you. If you were here, you will remember how I read it. Here's how I read it. Pastor Carl, in the time of my favor, my unmerited favor that I gave you, I heard you when you called out my name. And in the, in the day of salvation, of your salvation, I helped you be saved. And that's the way salvation comes. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. And then he writes, this is important, 
I tell you all, that's plural, so he's talking to the whole church now, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now. Now is the day of salvation. He's not talking about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. When Jesus died on the cross and went into the grave, he rose from the dead, and he went back to heaven to the right hand of God. And then he sent the Holy Spirit. And the day of salvation that he's talking about here is a period of time. The day of salvation is the day that he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit until he comes again. Jesus is coming again. That's the day of salvation. That's the day in which we're living. So it's important we don't waste this time we live in and that we do all we can now to tell as many as possible about Jesus, who is the only way to know for sure you're going to heaven. Let me use a baseball illustration. Ty Cobb. Let me read it. Ty Cobb, that all-time baseball great, played 3,033 games and for 12 years led the American League in batting averages. For four years, he batted over 400. And on his deathbed, July 17, 1961, he said, you tell the boys, I'm sorry, it was the last part of the ninth inning that I came to know Christ. I wish it had taken place in the first half of the first inning. I've been in discussions where the question's been asked, you know, do you have any regrets in your life? And I always say one thing. I say, yes, I do. I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. And I wasted all that other time being an atheist and trying to discourage other people about it. And now I, it's a regret. I regret. Like I know I, I don't dwell on it, but I regret that I didn't become a Christian when I was a very young boy and have all that time to come to know Jesus. And so now, because of that, I'm going to play every inning of life until the game's over. And that's the picture here that Paul is giving us. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, so look again at your Bibles, Paul writes, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. He's talking about himself and the other teachers that were in the Corinthian church especially, so that our ministry will not be discredited. In other words, he said, we didn't do, do anything that should cause someone to come, and we never do against our ministry. You see, the false teachers were attacking Paul's credibility and integrity so they could gain control of the Corinthian church. But Paul is strongly denying what the false teachers were saying about his own life in Corinth. He had not been doing anything wrong. It's important that we all live our lives for Jesus in a way that should cause others to want to know about our relationship with Jesus. Paul had done so. Now, verse 4 is really important, and it's where I get the name of the sermon. Verse 4, rather, Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, notice there's in, there's two words, great endurance. Now, that's only one word in the Greek language, and the word is hypomone. <laughs> I thought I said to put that up again. Huh. Well, that's a, oh, my. That's a picture out of our coffee shop that an artist in the church drew. It's a caricature of somebody preaching a sermon. I don't know why he has a bicycle there. 
and a trumpet, but it's a caricature. Nobody could look that bad. So just to say, but hypomone is my favorite Greek word. One Greek scholar says that it's untranslatable. It means, I don't care what happens to me, I will not quit. That's what it means. William Barclay says this, Hypomone does not describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and bowed head and let a torrent of trouble sweep over it in passive resignation. No, it describes the ability to bear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them. Transfigures is the word for metamorphosis. That's a picture of a, uh, a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. Chrysostom, one of the greatest orators of the early church, wrote these amazing words. Hypomone, the root of all goods, the mother of spirituality, the fruit that never withers, a fortress that is never taken, a harbor that knows no storms, the queen of virtues, the foundation of right actions, peace in war, calm in tempest. It is the courageous and triumphant ability to pass the breaking point and not to break and always to greet the unseen with a Joy, with a joy. My favorite English word to describe the Christian faith. It's as faithful of joy. It is the alchemy, the chemistry, which transmutes tribulation, trials, and troubles into strength and glory. Have you ever met a, met a bitter person? A bitter person? There's no more uncomfortable person to be around. And not only that, but bitterness... Is like a cancer. It's worse than a cancer. It's totally curable. You, have to, you can stop it. And so the hypomony person is a person that gets better, not bitter. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it's so important to know. And in the Christian picture, it's to choose joy rather than unforgiveness and anger and all of these things. And that's what Paul was like. One of the biggest difficulties that non-believers have with the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the obvious hypocrisy of some who call themselves Christians. Paul was not a hypocrite. He was being accused of being one, but his actions proved the accusers wrong. This should be a huge challenge to all of us. These verses that we are looking at this morning represent a call to consistency in the Christian life, regardless of circumstances. Jesus said in John 16, 33, John's gospel, 16th chapter, verse 33, in this world, you will have troubles. In this world, you'll have trials and troubles and temptations. Then he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in the book of Nehemiah, we have this interesting little phrase, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. To choose to live, to choose joy is something we can do. I wish I could say I did it all the time. I really do. I fail occasionally, almost never. <laughs> Why is Valerie laughing? Anyhow, the, the true Christian minister is one who serves in humility and weakness. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to earth in weakness and humility, Philippians chapter 2. God became a man. Jesus became a human being, a human person. 
We are to imitate the humility of Jesus who never displayed self-pity nor looked for congratulations from others. Jesus lived a life of joyful sacrifice that we are to imitate as we join him as God's partners in the gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. So we have three groups now of three things that demonstrate Paul's great endurance that he's going to write about. So three threes. So look at verse 4 again in your Bibles and look at the first three words. Troubles, hardships, and distresses. In troubles, hardships, and distresses. These are three internal conflicts of every life. They include circumstances or trials under pressure plus everyday hardships such as sorrow, grief, sickness, and the kinds of distresses that put us in a position where things look hopeless. We've all been there, haven't we? Where it just looks hopeless. It's never hopeless. Never. Fanny Crosby. She was a hymn writer. She wrote a lot of hymns. She lived to be 95 years old, and she died in 1915. She was blind all her life, but she possessed a very cheerful spirit, which was reflected in her great hymns. When she was eight years old, try to imagine this. This is an eight-year-old. She wrote these words. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am determined that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. That's Hippomone. And on her grave... In Bridgeport, Connecticut, you can go there. <laughs> There's a simple little headstone with the name Aunt Fanny. Remember, she was 95 when she died. And these are the words on the gravestone. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I quoted that to somebody. I, uh, I think it actually was in our home fellowship. I got the location wrong last time, and he started to sing the, the verse. I mean, it's just, uh, well, no, I won't. <laughs> but I'd love to. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. She did not give up on life regardless of the circumstances, and neither did Paul. They were hupomone people. And then we have the more external conflicts of life. So look at verse 5, three more. In beatings, imprisonments, and riots. This was Paul's life. We're seeing a picture of his life here. Five times he was beaten with lictor sticks or rods. This was a terrible punishment where the skin on a person's back was ripped open with these rods. Each time uh, there would be 39 lashes, blood everywhere, and often one beating would kill a person. Paul endured such inhumane torture for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the uh, good news about Jesus. Five times, multiply five times by 39 and try to imagine it. One time, in a place called Lystra, Paul was stoned. Remember, that's a capital punishment. He was stoned by the people and left for dead. Stones all piled up under him, on top of him. Nevertheless, Paul did not give up, but he got up and went back into the same town and preached about Jesus. There was no quit in him. No quit in him. And imprisonments. We know from a historian, early church historian, plus the book of Acts, that Paul was in prison seven times. And every time I teach this, I have to stop and, and just 
we need to really realize what Paul went through for the sake of the gospel, what he did. Prison. When I was a policeman, I put a lot of people in jails and prisons. In 11 Division uh, Police Station in Toronto, Canada, where I was a police officer, we had our own jail, our own jail cells. And we often put people in those jail cells. They were kept spotlessly clean all the time. Uh, we made sure that they had enough to drink and they had regular meals. The people were taken care of even though they couldn't go anyplace. Uh, they're in a jail cell. Paul's jail cells were nothing like that. They were dungeon-type, rat-infested holes in the ground. And I'm not exaggerating. There was rats. There were all kinds of bugs. and oh, Just a terrible, terrible place. Disease everywhere. And you went into one of these places, and you, if you had a blanket, you could put the blanket on the floor and lie on it. Otherwise, you just lie on the floor. And you were fed whenever somebody got around to thinking about it, and they didn't always remember to, uh, to feed you. And the bodily things that we have to take care of, uh, they just stayed there. That's the kind of place he was in. Yet if you go to your Bible, to the book of Philippians, Paul wrote the book of Philippians from that kind of a jail cell. It's the most joyful, positive, encouraging book you could ever read. And yet he was in seven times, he was in this kind of circumstance. And he kept going. And then the third word here is riots. Every place Paul went and started talking about Jesus and the resurrection, mobs who could easily kill him would come around. And then we have the final three, and we're not talking about sports, in verse 5. In verse 5, you have three more. Paul says, in hard work, he's describing his life, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul sacrificed greatly for the sake of the gospel, even working to the point of exhaustion and losing sleep over his concern for the churches, sometimes going without food. Paul's trade was a tent maker. He wasn't on salary at a church, but he paid his own way by his trade which is one of the reasons he often went without sleep and even food in order to continue to preach and teach the churches he was ministering to. So Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthian church to help the Corinthians there understand what all has happened to him and the other church leaders. He's not the only one. There were other church leaders there that he had with him. So the severe letter that I mentioned caused them eventually, to turn from the false teachers. This letter that we are studying this morning was written to instruct and encourage them so they will know they have made the right decision. It was never Paul's intention that this letter be made public as it is today. He never envisioned, he couldn't have imagined that we would be studying it almost 2,000 years later. And, and Paul was not bragging just simply demonstrating his commitment to those he taught and loved deeply. I've never forgotten a quote by Pastor John MacArthur years ago. I was listening to a tape of a sermon. If you don't know what a tape is, ask an old person. And uh, <clears throat> he said on the tape that if you're in the ministry and are not often tired, maybe you're not doing all you're called to do. When I started in pastoral ministry at Grace Baptist Church here in Sarasota a lot of years ago, decades ago, Pastor Berkeley Helms uh, gave me a couple of hours of the greatest advice I ever received on my first day. I didn't realize how great it was at that time. 
And, uh, but it was tremendous advice. One thing he told me is that I would find the ministry sometimes exhausting, but I must never complain to the people, only to the Lord. And in going like this, he warned me. He didn't ever want to hear that I, I said to any of those we were caring for that I was tired. And he meant it. Nevertheless, I am very glad that Paul wrote these words so that I might know how I should live, whether tired or not. I would know the meaning of hupomone. Now we have, starting in verse 6, two sets of four. So look at it again in your Bibles. Verse 6, two sets of four. So he's talking about his, really his character here and how it came about. Impurity, he's talking about sexual sin more than anything else. We'll study that next week. Understanding means he had knowledge. He understood the Christian faith. He understood why Jesus came. Then we have the word patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, who is God, and in sincere love. This is a, an amazing sentence. Paul and the apostles and teachers lived a life of holiness. Now, let's, I, I always like to explain the word holiness. We have a sort of a saying, a cultural saying, oh, he's holier than thou. It's kind of a backward slap type of saying. Holiness means to be separated unto God's purposes. Holiness means that I'm committed to do what God wants me to do, not what I want to do. And so Paul and the apostles and teachers lived a life of holiness, separated from the purposes of the world around them for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they also understood what had to be done for the ministry. They had the knowledge of that to be effective while being patient and kind to everyone. Now, the Greek word for patience could be translated long-suffering, and it is in most older Bible translations. And it's all, it's all about people. And, of course, Paul here is talking about Christians together. In other words, Paul was kind toward those who are difficult people. Now, we talk a lot about that here. We are to be one another people. Jesus said the world can judge what we believe by how we love one another. But some are difficult to love. Nevertheless, God loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And some of us, your teacher this morning, was a very difficult person to love. And kindness. This is one of my favorite words in the English language. I believe if we Christians were truly kind to others, including those who are not kind to us, it could change the world. It could change the world. Someone has said kindness thinks far more about others than of oneself. Paul, first of all, is talking about the body of Christ, the church. Church isn't some place you go to and leave. And, uh, you, you know, say, well, I went to 52 weeks this year. I went to church. No, church, you're the church. We're the church. Church is a family. And in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 32, in kindness, uh, I use this all the time when I teach about forgiveness. If you know this verse by heart and what it really means, then you never would have any problem with forgiving others. Here's a, here it is. Be kind and compassionate to one another. 
we're talking in the Christian body, but you kind of people outside of it too. But let's talk about our family that the world's looking at. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. This is it. Just as in Christ, in the Messiah, God forgave you. We didn't deserve the forgiveness we received. We didn't become Christians because we were baptized. You didn't become Christians because you joined a religion. We didn't become Christians uh, it's because of some ceremony. We became Christians because we admitted we were sinners and we needed a Savior and God forgave us. We had to admit that we didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyhow. It, how could we not forgive someone who is not too happy with me? Verse 6 again. We'll go back to it. In purity, understanding patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit. That's important. We'll look at it in a minute. But and in sincere love. Love. Now, most of you know that love in Greek has several, several different words for love. For instance, eros is where we get sexual uh, love. Filio, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philia is the word for loving brotherly love. And then agape is the word here. It's the word for the early church especially that they adopted. Agape is a love that I'm going to love you regardless. You can go ahead and not receive it, but I am going to love you regardless. And that's what God did. He sent Jesus to, to love us, to die for our sins that we don't receive. We still have to receive it, but that we don't deserve. And then in 1 Corinthians, way back months ago when we studied this, chapter 2, verse 4, here's some words of Paul. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in the, uh, there's another church in a place called Thessalonica, and Paul wrote to them also, and he wrote this. For when we brought you the good news, the gospel, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. That's a picture of character. That's a picture of Christian character. And the Holy Spirit, when we tell other people about Jesus, works in their lives. But if, if, if we have the character, if they respect us, at least somewhat, realizing that we really believe all this, the chances are pretty good they'll become a Christian. So here's what is needed to preach the gospel. Let's go to verse 7. Here's what's needed. Just a few words here. Verse 7. In truthful speech. Now this is a a little bit of an unfortunate way to translate that. The word speech is the Greek word logos, which many of you are familiar with. It's a word that just means word. And uh, in truthful speech really should be translated for our English, the word of truth. That's really what it should say. So in, in the word of truth. Now, we will never be able to experience an authentic Christian life unless the word of truth, that's our Bibles, New Testament, Old Testament, is part of our life. It is not possible for a Christian to live life the way God desires us to live without studying the Bible. 
You should have read it so many times if you've been a Christian for 10, 20 years that you know where everything is. The Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and then explains how we're to live in this world he created. In both the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament, the Greek Scriptures, we learn what life is about and what dangers and pressures and even joys are to be expected. Paul's life clearly gives us an accurate picture of how to live life regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. So now let's go back to verse 7 again because I want to emphasize something else. In the word of truth, verse 7, in truthful speech, in the word of truth, the Bible, and in the power of God, the power of God. This is a picture of what it means when we talk about being filled with the Spirit or being controlled by the Holy Spirit who is God. When we are saved, when we become a Christian, we immediately receive the Spirit of God and are now able to produce the fruit of the Spirit and walk in the power of the Spirit. And to use a little phrase, to walk in, when you see that in the Bible, is a description of how we live our lives. And the, the verse that underlines all that is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, which says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the word fruit is, is, a, is a singular word. So think of a, a fruit. Or think of a, a vitamin pill. And you've, you're taking a vitamin pill, and it's one thing, but it tells you inside of it is this and this and this and this and this and this. And you put that one in, and you get all those other benefits. Well, that's the picture here. The fruit of the Spirit within the, the pill, if you want to call it, or the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control, meaning that we're able to live that way. And then it says, I think it's kind of neat, against such things there's no law. Of course there isn't. But we can be like that. We can have the joy of the Lord and the peace that passes understanding and uh, patience and long-suffering with others. We can be kind people, uh, people that are known for their goodness. We can be faithful and gentle with others. And we have the ability, because of the Holy Spirit who is within us, we have the self-control and the ability to live life that way. We could, nobody could live that way for any length of time at all who aren't Christians and understood how the Holy Spirit works. Paul always gave God the credit for any ministry done through him. Always. You would never hear Paul say, look what I did. But he would say, look what God did through me. A life empowered by God will accomplish much more than a life lived in our own strength. So back to verse 7 again. Last time. Verse 7. In truthful speech, that's the scriptures, and in the power of God, that's the Holy Spirit, with weapons of righteousness, he's thinking of a Roman soldier, in the right hand and in the left. In the right hand are carried the weapons of attack, the sword and the knife, and in the left hand, the shield to defend. The New Living Translation puts it, we have righteousness as our weapon, both to attack and defend ourselves. We have the righteousness of God on us when we confess our sins, repent of them, and receive Jesus. And when God looks at us who are still sinners and still mess up, when he looks at us, he sees from a judgmental point of view the righteousness of Christ. We're already in heaven as far as he's concerned. When we die, we'll be with him forever. But we must 
have confessed our sins and to receive Jesus. Now, let's go through a few verses super fast. Verse 8, 8, 9, and 10. What is happening here is Paul is doing a comparison what the false teachers are saying and what the truth is. So Paul says, and I'm going to start in verse 7, and we'll just read it right through. In truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, glory and dishonor. Well, he was being dishonored by the false teachers, and so were a lot of the others in Corinth who had fallen for what they said. Bad report and good report. Lots of good things happened when Paul was there, but the false teachers are turning him into bad things. Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Imposters. And they were saying, Paul's an imposter. He's not for real. No, he's genuine. No one, yet regarded as unknown. Everybody knew who Paul was, especially in that day. Dying, and yet we live. And there were many times where Paul thought he was going to die when he was being stoned to death and lictor sticks and all these things. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Can you imagine that? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, that's the word for the poorest of the poor, yet making many rich, spiritually rich. And I love this. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. I mean, there's a man who is ultimately satisfied with life, even though if you look at his life, stand back and look, you think, how could anybody put up with all that? You know, Fanny Crosby never became bitter, ever. One time a preacher sympathetically remarked, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And she replied quickly, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I should be born blind? Why, asked the clergyman. Because, she says, when I get to heaven the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Fanny had lots of hardship, lots of ministry, still does. <laughs> and she endured because of her love for the Savior. And here's something she wrote. Listen to this. Someday the silver cord will break. We're all going to die. And I no more as now shall sing but oh, the joy that I, when I shall wake within the palace of the king and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Now, three more verses and we're done. Verse 11. Paul writes, you can almost feel his emotion here. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul's life was saturated in unconditional love. Love must be responded to to make it real. The most famous verse in the Bible in America is at least... John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. What did he give? His one and only son, Jesus. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be separated from God for eternity in hell, but have eternal life, be with God forever in heaven. 
And in John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, John the apostle wrote, Yet to all who received Jesus, him, Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, meaning believed all that he taught, he gave the right, the privilege, the ability to become children of God. We must respond to what God has done for us. We must respond to one another, to one another. A life without love becomes cold, barren, lonely, empty, and meaningless. In 1972, Life magazine ended. Now, for most of you, that doesn't mean a thing. But uh, I was in my early 20s when Life magazine went away. It was a glossy, big magazine that everybody read all over the world. And it was fun to look through the beautiful pictures and the glossy papers, you turn them over, and great stories about what was happening in various cultures. In June 14, 1968, that issue of Life magazine, there appeared a picture, now try to imagine this, of David Kennedy, very young, sitting by a pond outside the White House. That's a picture. The picture had been taken by Aunt Jacqueline, Jackie, you know who that is, and was inscribed by his uncle with the words, a future president inspects his property, David Kennedy. Though he had the name, status, wealth, and all that money could buy, he was found dead by his own hand at age 28. Money can buy the things of this world, but cannot satisfy one's inner longing for peace. 2 Corinthians 6.1 that we've looked at a lot just simply reads, as God's co-workers, Paul says, we urge you. I'm saying it. As God's co-workers, we, the leadership of Calvary Chapel, Sarasota, urge you not to receive God's marvelous gift of kindness and then ignore it. Don't waste your life. Paul hoped to see the inner character in the Corinthian Christians be displayed when among them. Their differences could be overcome and reconciliation could happen, but that was in the hands of the Corinthian Christians. They had to choose love and kindness as Paul had clearly proven to them by his life. In the book of Hebrews, last verses, it reads this way. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I tell the leaders all the time publicly, you've heard me say it, we must live leaders in glass houses. I've actually had people say, well, if you're going to be a leader and everybody's going to want to know all your business, you should know all my business. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So I end with these words. Thank you for being such a great gathering of saints at Calvary Chapel of Sarasota. You are a joy, not a burden, to your leaders. Hupamone. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul's example that we have. And, and thank you that we have so much of his writings. What a, what a gift that is that you have given us.
Help us to be those kind of people, Father. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter if we're male or female. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. It doesn't matter uh, if at all anything except that we just simply accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we can be like Paul and have the joy of the Lord as our strength. And you will give us amazing ministry that we could never have done without the Holy Spirit. And I pray for anyone who is here that doesn't know Jesus, that maybe this day they wouldn't waste another day, that they would just bow their head to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus is God. I know I rose from the dead. Please come into my life and save me. And he'll do so. And then you become part of the family of God, the church, using your gifts and abilities with others. We're a family together. We don't have people over us that tell us what to do. Instead, we together learn from your word by your spirit. And so I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, that they would choose to say that those very words. They don't have to be the exact words. God knows your heart. Or if you're online, that you would uh, simply pray. Don't risk taking another day because we don't know if we have another day. So I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.